Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two episode one and on today's program I talk to military sociologist Dr Marak Pozard, professor at the Pardi Rand Graduate School in California. We discuss the morale of Russian military forces currently fighting in Ukraine and what problems they appear to be suffering from. Marek spoke to me from his home in America. Marek, welcome to the podcast before uh, we start, I'll just do a quick disclaimer that the views that are expressed in this podcast are those of the people involved and do not represent the official positions of any organisations. And we are speaking in a personal capacity. With that disclaimer out of the way, can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the will to fight, morale and motivation? So, so I'm a military sociologist by training, and I work at the RAND Corporation. My dissertation focused on trust in small groups, and, and actually my very first project at RAND focused on the integration of women in the U.S. Special Forces. And particularly, I was looking at, with my team members, how that could impact unit cohesion. Turns out, over the long term, um, um, the integration of people who were previously excluded doesn't really have a major impact on cohesion. Um, units tend to be pretty um, resilient, even when there's new types of members who are being integrated into the unit who were previously excluded by the by military manpower and personnel policies. And I've since worked on projects with my colleague and friend Ben Connable and others looking at will to fight. And my interest in morale and motivation from military sociology perspective is really this idea that the military is a, uh, it's, it's a unique type of employer. It's not Costco or General Motors. Um, the military uses the tools of organized violence against others on behalf. And so understanding the reasons why people serve, what impacts their morale and motivation while they're serving, and, and how do you maintain and professionalize modern force structure as a result has always been a key topic of interest to me. Um, there's a unique features of the military, particularly Western militaries, which are highly professionalized. And how do you design um, systems in place to kind of essentially build and maintain and, and eventually dismantle these groups and to ensure that you have a, a, a structure that's that's essentially trying to ch achieve the same mission in a productive way. Well, we're going to talk about the, the problems that the Russian forces have had in Ukraine in their special, quote, special operation. Um, but let's start with some broad definitions. Now, when we talk about will to fight motivation and morale, what exactly do we mean? And if there are problems with these uh, concepts, how would they manifest themselves in uh, observable phenomena that we could actually write down? So, so I think the first thing with the will to fight literature, which is something that we realized pretty early on, is that it's highly fragmented. There's, it, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's scattered across historical literature, sociological literature, social psychology, psychology, even economic literature. So there's a lot of different definitions and not one is right or wrong, but I think it gives a different kind of lens into this unique um, phenomenon, which is why people have the will to continue fighting, particularly in war. I would probably, my bias is towards work by Charlie Moskowitz and others where he's defined morale as this willingness to sacrifice one's life for something greater. And I think what that shows is a set of values that are tied to something beyond yourself. 
And when I think of motivation, I think of a reason why an individual service member might act in a certain way, and it's much more narrow. And it could be a lot of different motivations, including morale. And so there's there's motivations that could involve money. There's motivations that it could involve a value set of service. It could involve relationships with others. But I think morale is something much more greater, and it, it really kind of encompasses the broader military's institution and it's 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 what it stands for and its mission set and how people see themselves in connection with that broader willingness to sacrifice themselves for something beyond. Them. Um, I think the best signal of a problem with morale and motivation is probably is 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 what happens when things don't go as planned. And I think one thing that you've seen in Western militaries, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K. and elsewhere, is that there's been this kind of delegation of authority and decision making to the smallest levels because war is just complex, right? And so what ends up happening is you have to rely on that private to make decisions that could potentially have long, far reaching effects across different layers of the organization and your country's foreign policy. So I always the example I use is sometimes is in Iraq is some 18, 19 year old private has to make a decision whether or not he he or she's going to fire onto this you know, Toyota that's barreling down the road. And that decision could have impacts if it's a family going to the mosque, if it's if it's just one individual who might be a potential suicide bomber, that can have huge implications. And we rely on professionals at the lowest levels to make these decisions. And I think what you're seeing in many cases is, you know, you know, as you know, no plan ever survives that first contact with enemies in war. And things can change very rapidly and personnel and their leaders have to adjust. And this involves decisions at the tactical and operational level that can involve strategic level risks. And if you don't have a general willingness to sacrifice for something greater than yourself and you're not motivated as an, at the individual level, it's often worth not making those risky decisions or just retreating or just doing nothing. And I think what you're seeing with Russia right now is in many cases, they don't have the agility to respond to shocks to the battlefield. And at the lowest levels of their force structure, you're seeing individuals not adapting. They're, they're, they're just standing still in many cases, or they might be retreating, or they might actually be doing counterproductive behaviors that don't actually push the mission forward. And so I think just to kind of sum up, sum up, I think in many cases, when, when you see low morale and you see lower levels of this motivation that are, that are a part of morale, but something different, Sometimes what people aren't doing is an indication of, of what kind of these problems that are lurking in structure, where you have people at that lower level of the military just kind of standing still or not really sure what to do. And they just kind of say, well, I'm not going to stick my neck differently. I'm kind of keep my head down and try to get through this as best I can. So what are causing the problems of morale in the Russian military that we witness? Um, is it, it seems to be a, a, a combination of either they don't have the capability or the willingness to do it, or is it a combination of both? I mean, I think it's all of the above. Um, I think the decline of morale in a military organization is kind of like what Hemingway said about bankruptcy. It happens gradually, then suddenly. And so my suspicion is in the Russian military, is despite their efforts of professionalization, there's probably been a gradual kind of decline or at least a lack of improvement that is necessary to fight a major. And then you get into combat and then you really start on seeing the onion starts unfold and you suddenly see a lot of these things that were building up probably over. So, so for example, in Russia, there's a documented set of problems that exists in their military armed personnel over the last two plus. We've known that there's housing shortages with Russian soldiers. You know, there, there's soldiers who are reporting or there's been reports of soldiers who are 
who are officers forced to live with their in-laws. We know there's issues of low pay. We know back in 2014, the Russian Ministry of Defense reported that a quarter of their own personnel self-reported problems with their infantry equipment. Uh, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense actually has a sociology center. They, they published research uh, that used to be publicly available. I think much of it has been taken down. Um, and, and they do surveys of their personnel. And there's evidence dating back years ago that their personnel were reporting problems um, that we're seeing in, in Ukraine today. We also know just by looking at speeches and other types of publicly available information, there's been a history of shortages of officers on the battalion regiment level. And so the truth be told, the military manpower and personnel system of these foreign militaries is kind of a sleepy area of research, which I've written about a little bit in the past. So it's sometimes easy to dismiss these as kind of one-offs or try to explain away like why this one problem's happening over another. But when you start putting it together, you can get a very different kind of logic path. Um, if you just imagine yourself as a young Russian enlisted soldier and you see your higher ranking officers living with their wives' dads, if you're not paid a whole lot, people in your unit don't know how to operate their tanks during your last training exercise. They don't have as many officers as you need to kind of direct combat in the field. Maybe you thought you were going to a training exercise and then suddenly you ended up in Ukraine, which has been reported that there are some personnel that didn't even realize they were actually going to Ukraine in the early part of the war. And on top of that, you don't really know why you're sacrificing your life in Ukraine. The legitimacy of the Russian military as a whole, at least in your eyes as a junior enlisted soldier, probably isn't very high. And so when you see as an individual soldier, you start to fight the enemy and your buddies are being killed in combat, and then you see these logistics failures, it's easy just to throw up your arms and give up in, in frustration and confusion. And so I think what you might see is all of this kind of accumulates into this kind of outcome where people desert, they surrender, they might try to injure themselves to get out of the battlefield, or they do nothing at all and they just wait for someone higher up to tell them what to do because they just don't know how to manage. And so I think a lot of times, at least from my view, is these causes usually happen at a higher level and they can slowly trickle down in different ways. And then they culminate in a perfect storm, particularly in battle where it's already this fog of war and it just, that fog becomes basically pitch black. And can we actually trace any of these problems back to wider, I suppose, societal issues within Russian um, civic space within Russia? Well, I think one way what, what, is, what they've tried to do in Russia is they tried to really kind of pump up this nationalism and they've tried to amplify the view of the Russian military as a new source of Russia's strength. Um, and I think that in some cases, you know, this that narrative is, is being exposed um, in, in one way or another. And I think one thing that can happen is, is that that can almost amplify a civil military divide. When you believe you have this, this great military that is representing your country, that, it, that, is, that is failing in, in war with one of the poorest countries in Europe, um, you know, the mirage all of a sudden kind of is exposed. The emperor doesn't have any clothes on. So my, my suspicion is, is that, you know, this is actually probably going to create deeper tensions for, for civil military affairs in Russia. Um, and it's kind of ironic, right? Their attempt to kind of amplify Russia and, and their military as this, this source of strength. And Ukraine essentially is undermined it. And by undermining it, it actually makes the situation of civil military relations in the Russian in, in Russia much worse. I, I, that would be my forecast looking forward. And do we have any indication about the scale of these problems? I mean, obviously, some parts of Russian forces are fighting and maybe fighting reasonably well. Do we know who's actually fighting and who isn't? I don't have detailed information about that. And I think it, it's going to be 
I think it's going to be fragmented. I think you'll find stories where it's working. You'll find stories where things are not working um, well for the Russians. I, I would argue, though, that the whole is better than the parts, right? And no military can successfully fight a war if you just have a couple one-off units that are doing it. And I think what we're seeing, though, is holistically, there's some severe problems with their force structure. And I don't think this happened overnight. I mean, these things don't just kind of bubble up, you know, after a couple of days or months. These are years and years in the making. What I think is particularly concerning for the Russians is that they have publicly at least acknowledged, and I, and I would suspect that there is some truth to what they've acknowledged, is an, a concerted effort to build up a professional force structure. And despite that effort, it still doesn't look like things have been successful. Um, they have been successful in other contexts. I'm not I'm not an expert on all of the different types of um, wars that Russia has been involved in. So I don't want to make it sound like Russia is um, only two feet tall. But I also think people who are claiming it was 100 feet tall were not correct either. And the, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, um, if that answers your question. So what are the Russian military authorities doing to address these morale problems? Um, I've, I've heard reports on the on the on the Twitter. Well, whether you can believe that's not the matter, but that that you've had you've had stories of um, Russian units being placing machine guns behind advancing units to shoot them on retreat. You know, looking like very much the sort of Stalingrad films, or we've had all the sort of the the um, Hollywood version of the Russian army in the Second World War. Is there any truth to these uh, rumors? So it's hard because I think what you're seeing is a lot of, and this is actually another interesting question about social media, where you can kind of essentially live stream a war, or you can live stream a war that's essentially like fiction. And I think one thing that we have to be careful of is what we're seeing in terms of reports and online, how true is it and how much of it is completely false or there's a kernel of truth in there. Now, let's just say, just take it, the short answer is, I don't know if those reports are true or not. But if they were true, just hypothetically, my guess is that it might be one rogue officer or rogue unit out of desperation is doing that out of a threat. I can't imagine actually using that, essentially executing your own personnel um, would be a, a long-term effective strategy for motivating them to fight. But I could see that being used as a um, as a as a threat, and that that in my mind would be a sign of desperation that someone doesn't have command and control over the, over the unit, and they're trying to use kind of these threats or these symbols to um, deal with an issue in the short term, which I would argue is probably a sign in the longer term that there's broader leadership problems and broader problem manpower personnel system honestly need to be addressed. And out of desperation, someone's doing some kind of stunt, like just to kind of basically maintain order and discipline in the short term. So we've got a new batch of recruits being um, apparently recruited and trained at the, at the moment. I think a number of uh, tranches of reserves have been mobilised. How are the Russian forces going to motivate these individuals to fight the, the expected new offensive in the new new year? Obviously, we're recording in the tail end of 2022. It's going to be difficult, I think, as a military sociologist, because they're in this odd spot where they're kind of they have a hybrid force structure. They're essentially similar to where the U.S. was back in the 70s, um, where we have a, a mixture of conscripts and a mixture of an all-volunteer force. Um, we quickly transitioned to an all-volunteer force, we being the United States. Um, the Russians have always kind of slowly done this, in part, I think, because it's just a cost effort. It costs a lot of money to operate an all-volunteer force. In many cases, what you're doing is you are, uh, well, you are competing in the labor market for quality people. You're competing in the U.S., for example, as our military is competing with 
the private sector, with government, with the federal student loan program for people who might want to go to college instead of going into the military. So you have to have a strong value proposition. We did that very quickly, and we stood up a massive program, we being the United States and the U.S. military, to essentially assess the morale, well-being, and the professional development of, of personnel in a volunteer force. And RAND, in many ways, has been a key source of research and analysis dating back to the 70s to maintain this, this large volunteer force. The Russians have been doing it very slowly, particularly around 2000, and they're still kind of in this hybrid mode. And, and right now, what they're trying to do is they're trying to augment it in different ways. There may be private military contractors, reservists, they're trying to use conscripts. And, and I can tell you, at least from the U.S. experience, it's, it's a very, doing it quicker is better than just kind of doing a hybrid thing and that kind of a hodgepodge of mixture of different types of personnel in your force structure over a slow period of time. So my suspicion is, is that these longer term efforts to move to a professionalized force structure are probably a key driver for a lot of the problems that they're seeing. And, and right now they're stuck in this position where they're essentially, have, they have the military that, they, they have the military they have, not the military they not, might not necessarily want. And so what they're trying to do is adapt and kind of adapt accordingly, but it, it, it's difficult. It's difficult when you don't have just an all volunteer force to adjust and, and, and reassign. And with all the sort of uh, organizational challenges, how's that going to affect the will of those soldiers who are in those trenches as we speak, wanting, continuing to fight and maybe over the the long to medium term? So there was actually some work done um, by a colleague of mine, David Siegel, um, back in the 90s on the Russian military, back when they followed the Soviet Union. And one of the things that they found was that expectations were a key motivator um, for service members. And one issue I think comes up is, is expectations for what's going to happen after their tour is done and what's going to happen after this war is done. And if you are in the trenches and you don't see things working and you have low morale coming down your rank structure, you're not getting quality people who are who are, are, are kind of backing you up in terms of the fight, your expectations for the future are going to shift. And I could see a situation um, evolve potentially, again, this is a hypothesis that uh, all these other kind of organizational issues are going to shape the expectations of an individual, and it's going to further degrade trust, morale, well-being, and a sense of reason of why you're there. And I can only imagine that it's not going to get better. These kinds of problems are decades in the making. These are not problems that happen overnight. And solving them are going to take a concerted effort that's quite expensive and costly to the Russians and the Russian government, the Russian military. And they can't they can't fix this overnight. And so once these kind of expectations take hold, morale and well-being and unit cohesion only, in my opinion, are probably going to they're probably just going to further disintegrate. And do you think ultimately that could mean that the Russian military ceases to operate as an effective military force, which might mean that you you are forced to the negotiating table? Yeah, I think so. And I think in some cases what could potentially happen is you start using different types of mixtures of, of personnel. And we're seeing that right now, right, with with private military contractors that can only get used. Um, but I think in many cases that, you know, it, it can lead to some pretty disastrous outcomes, right? Either negotiating a, a ceasefire and uh, an end to the conflict and the war or just a complete withdrawal. I can't make that forecast. And I, I know people try to make those forecasts. I don't want to be someone who's told six months or a year from now, remember when you said that, that this was going to happen and it didn't. But I can just tell you from as a military sociologist is when morale is low, it's hard to turn that, turn that, uh, that, 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 uh, 
that car around. And in many cases, what will happen is, is that those, those ex low expectations for your leadership and the military as a whole and the mission, it, it, it's hard to kind of quickly change that. And I think it, it then makes it, 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 in many cases, it ties one hand behind the back of political and military leaders to actually execute. And finally, do we know if the Russians actually have, a, I suppose, a, a, a structure within their force to actually monitor uh, morale, you know, in terms of it, as as it was done in the past, intercepting letters, looking at surveys and things like that. They do. They actually have a military sociology center. So there's a version of me in Russia that that does 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 research on their force structure, and they've been doing it for some time, which makes sense because when you transition to a more professionalized force structure, you need data and analysis to understand what's going on. I, they, their research has actually cited me in the past, and I know that they're looking towards the U.S. as an example because they've cited the work of Charlie Moskos and David Siegel, particularly and Mady Siegel and, and other military sociologists in the past as they've tried to transition, particularly work down the 70s and 80s when the US was making and fine tuning its all volunteer force. And they've cited myself and my other colleagues at Randall too. Um, I think that the, the work is still in, in its infancy in many ways. And, and that makes sense because it takes a long time to build up a scholarly community that can really have, you know, the quality methods and research and analysis to, to kind of push any kind of military force structure more towards the direction of being a more professionalized force. With all that being said, what I would, what I would argue is that, you know, the data can only get you so far. Ultimately you need that leadership as well as the resourcing to ensure that you can make a policy intervention that's going to move the needle. Um, and I, I think they, the, mil the Russian military has been well aware of some of these problems that were lurking inside their military manpower and personnel system for some time. I think it's now that it's just Western observers have now kind of clued themselves in and realizing that these problems were lurking as well. And in fact, there's a ton of open source um, research that has been documenting some of these problems for quite some time. Finally, Marek, where can people learn more about your work and obviously the work of RAND? So... We have a website, ran.org. If you search for my name, Mark Posard, M-A-R-E-K-P-O-S-A-R-D. And also you can just come to my Twitter handle, M-N-Posard, twitter.com slash M-N-Posard, or just send me an email. Rick, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.